Hello, and welcome to episode 63 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. This is a very special episode of the Tennis Abstract podcast because we are sitting across a table from each other, which is something that we're rarely able to make happen. So excited to get this done. If, if this goes well and the tennis is interesting for the next few days, we may throw in a bonus episode while I'm still in the same zip code as Carl. Zip code? Area code? I don't know. How Both you, of them. I don't know how you dis- determine areas around here. Um... So we are in the middle of the French Open. Sorry we didn't have anything for you last week. I was at the French Open in Paris, and a full day of spectating doesn't really go well with podcasting if you are there as a regular spectator like me instead of uh, a, a accredited member of the, the media, which I was not. So we're going to get to the tennis. Lots of interesting stuff happening so far. Some big surprises on the women's side, some... Not as big surprises on the men's side, but some some good, great matches coming up, I think, uh, to, to make up for some lopsided ones so far. But there's some general topics I wanted to talk about before we get there. And one of those things starts with a complaint I've heard several times about my website, Tennis Abstract, in the last week. Uh, many of you have asked when there will be a forecast for the French Open, uh, or a draw, or results, or anything having to do with the French Open. I understand. I've been providing those for every slam for, I don't know, five years, seven years, some long period of time. And this is the first time I've pretty much just punted on the whole thing. Um, And as many of you know from using the app, from using the websites, Roland Garros has always kind of gone its own way among the slams. Uh, Until a couple of years ago, all four slams had deals with IBM, so the slam websites were pretty predictable in what was on them format they were in and all that kind of stuff. Last year, the Australian Open and the French Open both designed their own websites, and there was a lot of complaints last year about the French Open website and the data that wasn't there. Um, This year, it's a lot better. There's a lot more data on the site, but they've redesigned the whole thing. I didn't have it in me to scrape a whole other new website, but that's my explanation or my excuse or whatever. Um, So sorry I haven't provided that, but it is an interesting topic that I want to dig into with Carl here. Is there, it seems like every slam, every new type of website with results and stats and that stuff on it, people complain about it. And some of that's just people complaining because of something new or unusual or different. Um, but Roland Garros seems to inspire a special level of hatred among tennis fans and tennis website users. Uh, Carl, what what do you want to see? Like when when a slam starts and you're looking for information about draws and orders of play and all that stuff like when you go to rollandgarros.com or is that even it <laughs> what the URLs? <laughs> we're beyond urls uh, these days i think but when you, when you go to that website what do you want to see there i think i'm really torn between wanting to see what i see for every tournament every year because there's something really useful about consistency this that uh, you learn how to master it you know where everything is uh and by everything i mean scores, draws, news, video, ideally interview transcripts live, that's a whole other topic, but, you know, interview video, but but kind of the basics of what is happening at the tournament right now in a way where I can quickly get to each kind of information and do it quickly because it's well-designed and also because I've learned that design, so now I'm even faster than I was originally. And, you know, this is the 
symptom number 1,000 we've talked about on the show of tennis being fractured. On the other hand, the nice thing about having different websites and different organizing bodies making these decisions is maybe someone will stumble upon a better system. From a data perspective, I think that's like an, a useful benchmark for me and maybe for you because we tend to look at, at things like that or maybe you don't even bother anymore. But, you know, I like to see what what are the match stats and how do they show them and have they come up with something that's, that's more useful than what other people are doing. And I find that what the French Open has done is like is definitely different than whatever people have done, but I don't see much that is better or clearer or more complete or uh, more understandable to someone who's new to some of these match stats. So, you know, I think that if you really had lots of different bodies, organizing bodies, like putting in all their best resources and best minds into coming up with something new and better, and that drove the sport toward progress faster it might be worth switching it up all the time, but I don't think we're getting that benefit. Yeah, I don't think so either. Uh, really, the, I think the only group that's pushing that direction is the Australian Open, since they do have the analytics group there that's doing some interesting work, creating new stats. Like We might not like all of them or want to endorse all of them, but the fact that they're producing them is, is encouraging. I'm not sure that we can say the same thing about the French Open because now that they have some interesting stuff on the match pages, like the Infosys match beats, uh, I hate it. I feel like I'm now a, a promoter for Infosys just by saying that phrase. But that was also something that the Australian Open had. And Infosys is, I believe, making the website and doing everything for the ATP. So before it was all IBM. Now it's all Infosys for some reason. So the ideal of having all these different different organizations try new ideas, share new ideas with, with fans. I'm not sure that's happening, which is, which is a shame. Jeff, I have to share my very specific and, and not important pet peeve. The rounding on percentages, have you, <laughs> have you noticed this? Yeah, well, I have a theory about that. And okay. At the, just to make sure I know what you're talking about, at the French Open, they round down everything, right? So you'll have they must. some to 99%. Yeah. I think it's because they hate the rich so much. <laughs> so so we're leaving out the, the 1%. Yeah, we're not even acknowledging the 1%. Except, you know, for Federer and Serena, the very <laughs> right. rich competitors. Except in their for order. all of the players that people want to watch. Yeah, I was in an awkward situation this uh, well awkward is too strong, but I, I, I went to the French Open the last two days of uh, qualifying on the, the Monday and Tuesday, the first week of the main draw, and then I, I, I was in Paris for several days after that, but just as a tourist, not watching any tennis, but in that time, Kaspar Ruud made his magical Norwegian tennis transforming run to the third round, and he gets to the third round to meet Roger Federer, so... I'm I'm in Paris with my Norwegian wife who likes tennis about as long as Casper is playing it. So thinking like if it's possible to go, like, she doesn't really want to go to the tennis. But you know if we can watch Casper play Roger Federer. So I'm checking the the resale websites and the French Open ticket sites. And of course, as soon as we know what court they're on, then the the Suzanne Longland tickets for that day were completely gone. Um, I, th I think there's there's a handful of Federer fans there. I didn't see as many RF hats as usual, but even despite missing a few years of, of, of clay, Federer has retained plenty of fans in Paris. It's FR in French, so you, you probably saw a lot of FR hats. Probably, yes. I, th I think that's how it works. Um, 
What about the what about the apps? I think that the big complaints about the French Open have been focused especially on the apps. I think last year when they first struck off from IBM, they were not prepared to do that. I think that was true of Australian Open last year too. They were a bit ambitious with their timetable. Um, so the apps weren't really ready. It was tough even just to find basic things like draws and scores. Like, Is there anything beyond just live scores, order of play, draws that you want to see on a Grand Slam app? I mean, if, if I have Wi-Fi and the app is good, I would totally watch highlights. I would I would watch even an interview if I had uh, headphones. But I think you do have to nail the basics first. And I found the app decent, but again, confusing in organization. And it's occurred to me while we're talking that some of this might be just the challenge of trying to make something for the whole world where there are probably different styles of design uh, in different places. Like, I don't really understand where draws are relative to current matches, relative to schedules, but maybe it's because U.S. tournaments are different or just the U.S. Open is different and I'm conditioned in a certain way. But um, it does seem pretty fast. It seems pretty up-to-date and uh, doesn't crash as much as a lot of tennis apps do. So so that's, that's pretty good. Like, it's not... Um, it's not awful. I mean, it is like with everything about a slam. It's there's two weeks where everyone is paying attention and then nobody cares. And there's this hard deadline. And you mentioned ambitious timetables for last year and just knowing how projects work in, in any workplace. Like I could just imagine all sorts of things that aren't quite ready yeah, because well, there's no you, chance to test them. Like the yeah. only opportunity to test things is qualifying. And it's too late at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be interesting if Slams teamed up with like some other tournament a couple of months before, so that you could you could use the Monte Carlo tournament as a test bed for what they're trying to do with the Roland Garros app. But yeah, I mean, it would certainly work well for some of the other Slams, like the Wimbledon is closely related to the grass season, and then there's the U.S. Open series, and so really the French Open is the only one that doesn't have natural partnerships like that. Yeah, yeah, I you know I think that it's. Uh, it's it's also there's something a little bit French about all of it. Like the the French Open has. Have you been to the French Open Museum? No, I didn't go. It's it's worth going if you're there again. And one of the things they have is like the posters from every year throughout history. I mean, probably not from the very first one, but for decades they've had like an official poster, and it's a, usually a very avant-garde piece of art. And I think there is an impulse to like make something that's very unique and special, not just to the French Open, but to the French Open 2019. And, you know, ten, my tennis apps are my only apps that force me to update every year when the event happens. Like other sports apps are just doing what they're trying to do. So there is this this sense of like, this is our one chance and we have to do something special and do something new. And sometimes that's great and probably more often it backfires. It seems to be something with the sport, too. I mean, it, it, this is something that's happening across the culture and I'm not, not a huge fan of it. But there's this sense that here in Silicon Valley that you you grow or die. And I feel like that's infected sport as well, that every year the the slams are competing with each other to up the prize money. Um, I guess that's extended to the apps as well. <laughs> I don't know whether the apps have to be cooler or they're competing with each other. But yeah, it, it, some, it used to be that Wimbledon could just be Wimbledon. And like Wimbledon's awesome, therefore 2019 Wimbledon will be awesome and worth going to as well. And maybe that's still true for Wimbledon. If it's true for any of them, it's probably true for Wimbledon. But even even there, I don't think they believe that anymore. They still feel like they have to top it, and they have to have something special for the queue this year. And I don't know, all the, all these tournaments are building new stadiums, and 
roofs, and it just has to keep getting has to keep getting better. Somehow, like 120 plus years of hosting this incredible event isn't enough. Kind of depressing. I know that this was sort of laughed off last time I brought it up, but do you think that the tournament sense, the, the Grand Slam tournament sense, that while they do have this incredible historical moat protecting their special place in the tennis calendar and all the revenue that brings them, that maybe that's that means less today. So they have to add, they have to spend all the money they've generated to build more of a like a different kind of moat to protect themselves from either a different event in their same country or some other event kind of encroaching on their power in the sport? I don't know. I, I'm surprised I left that off. I don't think that's a that's not ridiculous. Um, but I think like, the moat they have is is it's not just the brand. I mean, it, it, talking to New Yorkers who aren't tennis fans, like they do have a huge moat in the brand. Like everyone I know in New York has some U.S. Open story. Like they got tickets for work and they went to the men's quarterfinal eight years ago or something. They have all, they've all got something like that. So it's it's a part of the culture here that. The New York Open. <laughs> the New York <laughs> Open is not. But even even on another level, like the Cincinnati Masters isn't isn't at the same level. The City Open in D.C. isn't at the same level. Like you talk to people in D.C. and they don't even know there's a tennis tournament there. Um, but the moat they have is their status within the sport. So if you're promoting a slam, you are virtually guaranteed that whoever the ten hottest names are in that sport right now, you get to use them in your marketing. If you're if if you're the Munich 250. You've got to spend, I don't know, a quarter of a million dollars to get Alexander Zverev to show up and be on your posters. If you're the French Open, he has to come. You don't have to pay him anything. I mean, you're going to give him a lot of prize money, and maybe maybe that's the motivation. So you have to, you can't screw up so much that the players are going to stop coming and the the tours are going to start thinking maybe we should have three Grand Slams instead of four, or we should move a Grand Slam to Shanghai. But I feel like that's that would take a big screw up. Is I think you're right that the slams are unique in that sense. Are the combined Masters premiere like how far behind are they in terms of being sure that the top players are going to show up? Because some top players don't show up to slams because they're not fit. Yeah, but only when they're not only when they're not fit, right? I mean, that doesn't happen very often, except for Federer these last few years. I can't even think of a. Are there prominent examples other than that? I guess Nadal has skipped a few when he wasn't healthy enough. But apart from that and, and Roger skipping the last couple French Opens, like is that a, something that commonly happens? Yeah, pro- no, probably not. <laughs> even looking at Serena, like it, it seems like you have to work pretty hard to get Serena to come to your tournaments these days. She has other priorities, and, and she's dealing with her own health issues, but she is going to be at the slams. Yeah. Hell yeah. or high water, she's going to be there. Uh and maybe she still has health issues. She's still going to be there. Uh, so to me, to me, that's the moat, and they don't really... I, everything else, cynically, I look at it as just a way of extracting more money from fans, whether it just means an excuse to raise ticket prices or sell more different tickets or get people in for, like, I mean, I don't know what they are, like the, the VIP packages with nice restaurants and catering and stuff. I don't even know what's going on. I've never done any of those things. So I'm just assuming there are ways that the the Grand Slams separate a lot of money from rich tennis fans. Um, but I feel like that's the target. It's like the, the luxury boxes at major sports arenas. Um, they just figure out how to get that money from people in addition to the 50 to $100 or euros they get for just an entry ticket. I will say, though, like, 
there's a lot to complain about along those lines, but Monday and Tuesday, first week of the French Open, the grounds passes cost 35 euro. And I'm not, is there a, a better deal in sports spectating? Well, free qualifying. I mean, it's better better tennis. <laughs> Wait, I, fair, fair point, especially given your audience of me. I don't know about the audience, but although free, it's not free qualifying at the French Open. I think it was 20 euro. That's actually, I didn't think about that. How That's, close that is to yeah. the Masters. And, I mean, I love qualifying, but even Friday, the number of matches has dropped quite a bit. So it's not even really a full day. I think I went home around 4.30 or 5 on Friday. Um, but... 35 euro, 40 bucks for everything. I mean, the first couple of days of a slam, you're getting some really good players off the main courts, even though they split the first round into three days. I was a little worried about that, but lots of good tennis to watch. So we're kind of jumping into the next topic without the intro, which is this was your first time. At the this was my first time. So I've completed the lifetime spectator slam and the lifetime spectator qualifying slam, which is one of the proudest achievements of my life thus far. How are you on the spectator lucky loser slam? That involves watching the lucky loser play in the main draw? I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. I, I probably have got that too. I don't remember if I watched it. I'll have to check. I, I, no, I missed that at the Australian Open. I've never been to the Australian, Australian Open for early rounds of the main draw. But... Other than that, I mean, it's all lucky losers. If I can construct an entire day out of lucky losers, then I probably would. Uh, have you been to Australia? No, that's the one missing for me on the qualifying and the main draw and the lucky loser okay. category. But you've been to Wimbledon several times, U.S. Open many times, and Roland Garros twice, three times? Three times. Three times. And all were as press, right? Uh, I had press credentials, but I sometimes went with it, you know, just as a fan including queuing at Wimbledon. So we, we talked about this a little bit offline, that the French Open has always been kind of the smaller site and can get more crowded. Uh, it's better this year. Is it? I mean, I, I don't have anything to compare it to, but I talked to some people who've been there multiple years, and they have the new court, the Simone Mathieu court, and they opened up some space around. I think it's it's courts 13 and 14, so there's more... There's more seating there. It's also just a little bit more space around that area. So I think it's better, although it's still still really crowded, maybe more, still more so than Wimbledon or the U.S. Open. But, uh, I mean, what, what's your take? Like, Do you think that one of those three is, is more enjoyable as a fan than the others? Well, what you just said makes me humble in my opinion because <laughs> my last French Open was 2015, my last Wimbledon was 2015, and as you were saying earlier, these tournaments are, are constantly building new stadiums and changing changing what they've got. But they, they are somewhat confined in what the boundaries are of their grounds. And the French well, Open so managed to push it. nearby golf course. Yeah, that helps. Um, so it, it probably hasn't changed that much. And I, yeah, see, I think I'm biased because I think the U.S. Open in 2015 was behind Wimbledon by a lot in how much I enjoyed the fan experience. And the U.S. Open in 2018 was ahead of what I remembered of Wimbledon because they had really revamped the grounds in a very fan-friendly way that accommodated more people and encouraged flow. But probably Wimbledon got better in those three years, too, and I just didn't experience it. Probably, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I guess, I, mean, I, I haven't been to Wimbledon for a few years. I haven't been, like, I've only been to one main draw day ever, so... I'm not, I don't have a lot of feedback there. But when you, uh, when you watched 
What was the match that you uh, parked yourself at? It was um, it was Stakowski, I think Stakowski Cuevas. Burlock. Burlock, even better. The free Cuevas. Yeah, was a, that was a good one. Um, hey, I had I had uh, Center Four tickets. I watched Andy Murray, I think, play Gofan. But maybe only a set. I was too far away and it was under the overhang. It wasn't that great. But I agree. I, I was at the U.S. Open last year, and I think the fan experience has improved a lot. And to me, a big part of that is just putting more seats out there. Like, the ratio of tickets to seats is huge. Like, the one thing to me that the French Open's missing is, I think it's, is it court seven? That It's an outer court at the U.S. Open, but it's got a big grandstand. So it's usually where they put, like, the unseated Americans uh, so it's like the fifth biggest bat matched any time. So there's tons more uh, more seating there. There's tons of the, the newest stadium has. Oh, Court 17. That one too. No, yeah, no, no, oh, no you're no, talking I'm about Court 7. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's Court 7 and Court 11 that are, the, they've been there forever. They've but got they're big grown. grandstands. Yeah. Um, but it, yes, uh, if you go on Saturday in the middle of the tournament, the U.S. Open, it's going to be crowded. You have to plan ahead. You might have to wait to get into a match, but first couple days, I mean, you can pretty much walk into anything you want as long as it's not someone they put on the wrong court by mistake or, or a really popular American all of a sudden. And another bonus at the U.S. Open is you can watch any court except for Ash, right? You uh, that's right. That you There's general admission to every other stadium, yeah. That's one thing that really shocked me at Wimbledon, because is, is it three courts or four courts that are reserved only at Wimbledon? I think it's... Three center okay. one and two, I think. Is there a third court where they sell tickets? But yeah, also court three. Okay. okay, and then Roland Garros has three courts that are only reserved tickets, um, and that that strikes me as a disadvantage. Like the, it also means like, I was just looking at um, at some highlights from Halep's first round match, and that was in Chatrier, I think, and so many empty seats. I know this is this is such an old complaint that's become a cliche, but Oh, there's so many empty seats in these show courts. Until you get to the semifinals, even even the first set of semifinals, so many empty seats. I've watched some. I've been watching some older women's semifinals, and this is not a new problem. Like first set of the first women's semifinal, it, it, the stadium is two thirds empty. It's horrible. Uh, that's not really relevant anything we're talking about. But no, I think it, it's there. it's very relevant in that um, you know. I don't want to jump the gun again in the agenda, but I, don't you think the the sort of the extent to which seats are full has something to do with the scheduling, which has something to do with no lights on the courts? You'll have to unpack the the logic for your segue. Then, well, I mean, this is what I wanted to talk about next. <laughs> sure. I mean, you have to start earlier. Like one of the big knocks on you said, even for the semis, often for the first set, it's right. empty. And it's because people are eating lunch. And it's like, well, if you know everyone's eating lunch, you could just start it an hour later and then they'll be done with lunch. But you can't because of the lack of lights. Or do like the U.S. Open does and start at 11 but make that a mixed doubles match or something. Yeah. So there's tennis reveal who, like, I've been that guy who got who went to the quarterfinal day and the matches didn't start until two or something, but I've got to take it to the quarterfinals on Ash, so I'm gonna go I'm gonna get in there at ten thirty. <laughs> so yeah, you've got mixed doubles to watch. Uh, so yeah, but with the lights then I see your segue now. <laughs> Very logical. I'm a little slow today. I'm jet lagged, so I have excuses. Um so yeah, do you think is so what the lights mean is around 9.30, they pretty much have to call it a day on all the courts. And that does make for a long day of tennis. I mean, for, for me as a spectator, I didn't feel the need to stay longer than that. 
if I showed up at 11 to stay for more than 10 or 11 hours of tennis. Uh, I'm just hearing that from the perspective of a non-tennis fan. Like, of course not. <laughs> what the hell's wrong with you? Uh, but no one like that is listening, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, we have a very targeted audience. Any advertisers listening, very targeted audience. Um, we, have, we have people who are very interested in your product and also will probably not pay for it. Um, but that does mean that, like, I'm not sure. When we started, rec- we're recording this on Monday afternoon, U.S. time, but Monday evening um, European time looks like we're in the middle of a fourth set between Kachanov and Del Potro. As far as I can tell, they're still playing, but we are inching toward the time when the the supervisor is coming out and they're looking up at the sky questioningly. And it seems like pretty much every day there are matches being suspended. It's just the nature of the French Open. You get to the fourth set of the last match on Chatrier and Matt, too dark, got to come back the next day. Uh, do you think that hurts the spectator experience? Well, I think it probably does in a few ways. I was also thinking that it, it just hurts the, the event. But from the spectator experience, there's the factor that there's often a push to finish a set or a match, and you actually can't see that well. <laughs> like, the players can't see that well, you can't yeah. see that well. It's it's just not ideal conditions for, for tennis. Yeah, um, one guy I was watching with, he, he had been at a, a late, I think it was the Sasnovich match the, on Sunday that went pretty late, and uh, it ended up being suspended, but he said he, he couldn't see the ball toss at, for the last several games. So how the players were getting through that, I'm not sure. Yeah, and I mean... You can't see that well. Presumably, the players can't see that well. The tennis is worse. If if, if they're not seeing their own ball toss, yeah. you're going to not have that good serving. And so, you know, none of that is great. You also, I mean, you're never guaranteed that you're going to see the end of the match that you started watching. It might be your fifth match of the day, so you've gotten plenty of tennis. But it kind of sucks if you've seen four great sets and your ticket doesn't get you the fifth set because they happen to not have lights on the court, whereas, you know, there are high school events that can finish in the dark. Um yeah, I, I I just think the spectators who are hurt maybe the most are the ones who would gladly pay for an evening session because that's what you can do if you have lights Yeah, and are not really going to practically be able to enjoy a day session because of their daytime obligations usually work. So I think that's the other thing that, that you're – you miss uh, for spectators when you don't have lights. You, not every event that has lights has a night session, but it would make sense that the French Open would and that it would, you know, certainly expand its revenue. Yeah, that's a, that I, I'm guessing that's a main focus for most of the tournaments who are adding lights or even adding a roof to the, the, the same general topic uh, because the sorts of people who own those boxes that are empty all the time they're going to show up for the evening sessions or more likely to send somebody to show up for the evening sessions, but they're, they're working all day at their investment banks or whatever they do. Uh, yeah. I mean, even in last night, the match that didn't end was Nishikori pair. So you've got, you've got thousands of French fans who showed up to watch Benoit pair. And I think they suspended that after three sets. Like it, it wasn't that close to the end of the match. So, I mean, talk about it, anticlimactic. You're part of this huge cheering section for Benoit Paire and splat. Like, you're, you're almost definitely, most of those people aren't coming back with Chatrier tickets the next day. So are you going to stay home and watch it at noon? Or are you going to try to get a ticket to watch the last two sets of a match? Like, maybe most people don't care. I don't know. It, it seems like, like it, we're always trying to figure out what do these 
mid-range tennis fans want. People who care enough to show up to a slam but aren't just batshit crazy about tennis like we are. Um, what do they want? And I would think watching the end of a match is one of those things. <laughs> or watching the last, I guess he wasn't the last Frenchman standing, but one of the last Frenchmen standing. Like, that's what they want. Everybody knows that's what they want, right? I mean, they're all, these tournaments are always pushing their home players at the expense of any other rational, uh, rational causes. Uh, and, yeah, they're putting that to waste by letting these, these matches dribble over to a second day. What do you think that does for the players? Uh, I mean, Nishikori had to prepare to play a night match last night, played three sets last night after waiting for a long time. Uh, he had to come back today, play two tough sets against Benoit Perry to win today, and he, tomorrow, I guess, he's playing Rafael Nadal in the quarterfinals. Nadal, I mean, Nadal's pretty much had a rest week. He hasn't been challenged for the whole tournament, but he had an easy match against Juan Ignacio Londero yesterday. Uh, he's going to come out super rested. Nishikori, I mean, it's, it's not a really tough day. It's not any worse than your typical like late rounds in a Masters, but I mean, Nishikori's a disadvantage here, right? I mean, it, it can't help him against Nadal that he's had to play two days in a row and Rafa hasn't. Absolutely. Again, this this is something I think we covered recently and covered how hard it is to really quantify. Like we first of all, we don't really have the data on the day of match, so we can't say going into a match how often a player was playing off, you know, one or two fewer days rest than his opponent or, or twelve hours if you really want to dig into it. But just intuitively it seems like it would be harder. I think you've studied this sort of at the extremes in terms of like the effects of super long five setters. And one of the confounders here is always going to be the player who struggled more in the previous round is probably the worst player to begin with in terms of their level at that moment. Uh, and certainly with Nishikori and Nadal at the French Open, if they came in with equal rest, you would favor Nadal, but you would also yeah. expect Nishikori to struggle more because he's not as dominant. And he but, didn't draw one of Nacio Landero. Yes, it was a tougher draw, but I mean, Pear is not a clay court specialist and he's not... Top ten. He's player. won two clay court tournaments this year. Okay. Yes. I he's think he might good... be moving into like, the clay court specialist conversation, especially since he's not doing anything on the other surfaces. On other surfaces yeah. But no, his, his his game is he's not particularly grinder on clay. He's not making me work like a Londero might. Yeah. Uh, your finding was that like even controlling for sort of level that the the guys who had to play the super long five setters did worse than expected, right? I think so. Uh, I would look it up, but. Be yeah. lots of distracting clicking. Yeah, I think so. And, and the, the difficulty with that confounder is always the way you control for it is look at the the elo go, going into the match or going into the tournament. So we might say that all else equal, maybe Nadal's an eighty percent favorite against Nishikori. I don't know, maybe higher at best of five, but whatever he is, he's eighty percent. But if you know Nishikori had to play five sets against Benoit Pair, do we think maybe Nishikori's off his game a little bit? I mean. I don't know whether I would make that conclusion in this case, but I would think in some instances like that, you have to assume that a player struggled because he is struggling, because he's worse than his, what is Elo saying, maybe because he's injured or whatever. So I don't know if you can ever totally control for that, uh, but it does seem like that. And it's logical. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that we have to remember that, like, there's all, the, all, all this controversy in, in the social sciences these days about p-hacking and that kind of thing, people looking for relationships that may not really be meaningful. Like, one way to check that is, like, like make sure that there's, there, there's a logical story behind this stuff. Like, I think 
most people, if they hear a logical story, that's enough. Some people, many of them in, in academia, think if you have a, a low, low enough R squared, then, or high enough R squared, <laughs> that's enough. And neither of those is enough. Like, the logical story could just be us being confused by biases. The R squared could just be p-hacking or and statistical artifact. But if you have both, like, it's no guarantee. It's never a guarantee. But, I mean, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not even going to investigate something unless I have a decently logical story for it. Um, but in this case, I mean, I think most commentators who aren't doing the research would agree that somebody like Nishikori is going to struggle coming back after a, a longer match like this and, and less time off. So if, if that's what the data supports, then and okay. I think that seems like a safe conclusion to make. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I would want to hear from players about is how, let's say Nishikori was on court for an hour and a half or two hours or something. He would have been practicing, to, presumably, maybe for an hour. What is the difference in like the intensity and the, the search strain of the body? You completely control practice. So if you're starting to hear, feel your hamstring tweak and know that's been a problem, you just cut practice short and don't you know get it get it worked on. And you can't do that during a match. So I mean, there are obvious differences, um, but I, I would just want to understand that a little bit. I mean, sometimes you hear people say a, a less extreme example than having to play two straight days for one match. You'll hear that a player is entering the doubles too, and they're doing well in doubles, and they have a oh, man, they, they finished this match tonight. They're going to have to come back tomorrow and play doubles and then play their singles match the day after. Is that going to be a big strain on them? But you also hear singles players describe doubles as a good substitute for practice. So so I just wonder, like, how these things uh, compare to each other. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be good to, to hear as well. Your point is a good one, that in practice you can you can stop, you can rein things in. Like if there's if you have a, a nagging shoulder problem, you can not practice your serve, maybe something like that. You can control everything. Even in a practice match, like you can hold back the effort level. Like you don't really hear about players getting injured in practice. <laughs> but I mean, that, that's a serious point. Like yeah. If we want to know how, how aggressively they're going after it, like they're getting injured in matches sometimes. But no... I mean, maybe maybe Feliciano Lopez or Ivo Karlovic at their advanced stages are getting injured in practice, but uh, most of the players aren't. And I think most singles players aren't getting injured in doubles. I haven't heard of that happen. No, not at all. Um, yeah, one of our listeners sent me a, a photo of Marco Cecchinato. Checking out, shoot. Checking out. I'm jet-lagged. That's my excuse. Um, sort of diving away from, from a ball of the net. So he's he's... Very careful not to get injured in doubles. He doesn't even want to engage with a tennis ball. He can avoid it. He just wants to get on court, get his paycheck, go home. Um, one last thing before we get into the the, the draw and the, the matchups at this point. We have to comment on the, the, the irony that Roland Garros doesn't have lights, so we have these situations, but now it's the only slam left with a truly open fifth set or deciding set. And we've seen that be a, be a factor already, because I think it was the Elise Mertens um, Sevastova match a few nights ago that maybe they didn't get to 6-6 in the third set before they had to call it, but it was I think it was 4-4 or 5-5 in the third set, and it ended up going quite long. Um, so it's a, it's a good thing they didn't try to finish it off, but maybe if they were playing a tie-break set, maybe they would have finished it. Or had lights. <laughs> yeah, if they had lights, they would have finished it. Yeah, but, but Roland Garros is staying full-on traditional. The French will have it their way. 
Well, I mean, there's some issue of like the local community with the lights, right? It's not it's not just the French Open not wanting lights. I, I imagine all if they had their choice, they'd, they'd have lights. That's probably true. But I agree. Yeah. You know, on the scoring, this ties back to our first topic in this episode of that's where I think like having a bunch of slams doing their own thing might get us somewhere faster. That uh, there's if if all four slams had to agree to change their scoring system maybe it would take years for them to all agree to change it in a way that would shorten the deciding set. Because they're all able to do their own thing, it's chaos, we laugh about it, whatever. But there now is some serious pressure on the French Open around the long sets this year, plus the lack of lights, that wouldn't have existed, I think, if the other three slams hadn't, or the other two slams hadn't made a move. I think the pressure should be on the Australian Open and Wimbledon for inventing ridiculous (laughs) new systems. Seriously. A super tiebreak at the end of the deciding set? Tiebreak at 12 all in the deciding set. I mean, are they high? If the U.S. Open, which went first in a different system, had said at 12 all a tiebreak, they would have been first. That wasn't like when they invented their thing, they, right? Wasn't it their invention? You're saying it wasn't an invention because we already knew that tiebreaks happen at 6 all. I just. But mean, didn't tiebreaks start out at 8 all, by the way? Like, weren't the first tiebreak? The, the Wimbledon. Wimbledon was doing that for many years. I'm not sure whether it's started that way i i think it kind of started like all of these all scoring innovations start like somebody decides it's a fun idea and they try to push it on their friends and anyone they can contact via email um but (laughs) but yeah i think the u.s open has done a deciding set tiebreak at 6-6 for a long time but wimbledon for many years did the tiebreak at 8-8 no my comment is just who's making this stuff up why 12 why a super tiebreak to ten? I don't. I don't know. I'm not a fan of of that variation. But I mean, I understand keeping it old fashioned, just having the advantage set, just like our grandfathers did. <laughs> um, My grandfather was playing stickball, but maybe there's tiebreakers in stickball. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he invented the tiebreaker in stickball. So okay, let's talk about some tennis players, and let's start on the men's side. Uh, I mentioned a few minutes ago that this Kachanov match was still going on, and it looks like Kachanov might be able to finish it off uh, and, and send Del Potro home, which means we have our quarterfinals set. Uh, Djokovic will play Zverev, team will play probably Karen Kachanov, uh, we'll have Federer, Vavrinka in the quarters, and then we'll have Nishikori, Nadal. And for a tournament that seems like the men's side hasn't had a ton of fireworks so far. I mean, there was this ex- the exciting Vavrinka sitsipas match, and there there have been some good matches against players who we didn't expect to go far, but um, not a ton of fireworks in the early rounds. But there's lots of potential here, don't you think? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of the very top seeds and a lot of multiple slam champs, and there aren't that many multiple slam champs in the game. Yeah, pretty much all the multiple <laughs> slam champs. Yeah. Uh, I mean... I, if if Delpo somehow comes back and wins, are there any active slam champs who wouldn't be? Who am I missing? Oh, Chilich. Yeah, Chilich. Yeah, but did, I mean, did Karlovich win a slam back in the nineties? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's 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 great. I mean, everything could be a three setter from here for sure. But <laughs> yeah. it's 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 going to be players you've heard of and seen what seen play really good tennis before. So that's exciting. Yeah, so I want to talk about a couple of these matchups. First one at the top of the draw is Djokovic-Zverev. And I don't know, maybe it's just the experience of the last few years, but I just expected Zverev to find a way out of this tournament. And 
Dusan Lejovic pushed him pretty hard. I, that sounds feels better this year than it did last year. Lejovic pushed him to five sets in 2018 as well. But since then, uh, Lejovic has won more matches, made the Monte Carlo final. So he's a legitimate threat. Uh, and then Zverev played Fanini today and, and lost a set there. But that's a very losable match for Alexander Zverev on clay, I think. But he made it through. Um, it was He made it to the quarterfinals last year as well. He lost a team there. Is that right? That sounds... Yeah. Uh, does Zverev have a chance here? Is, is, is he... Yeah, I mean, obviously he has a chance, but, I mean, what where would you put the odds on Zverev upsetting Djokovic here? Have you uh, pre, pre-registered oh, I yours? Pre-register. <laughs> I don't want to type because it's so noisy, but... but uh, I'll just... I'll trust you. Just think a very modern that. household here <laughs> so we don't have pen and paper. Okay, I've pre-registered. 32%. Oh, I was going to say 28. Okay. Um, you can tell if I pre-registered by the speed at which I yeah. throw in my answer, or I just take Carl's minus, minus 10%. Um, if, if Zverev wins, I mean, is that a step forward for Zverev, or is that just a, a fragile 2019 Djokovic? Dumb answer. It depends on the match. That's how it goes. It depends on how they play. Have to watch the match. <laughs> I mean, I think that first of all, you know, Zverev's beaten him twice out of four matches, and the only time they played on clay. So it's it, it wouldn't be a sh- it wouldn't necessarily be either. It would just be these two guys are actually fairly close. Generally, there's the whole Zverev is not nearly as good at in best of five, and there's now been enough data that I think I just have to accept that. And at least as being true so far, I don't think it's inevitably true for the rest of his career. And yeah, I just think that you're right that Djokovic is fragile in 2017. It's it's excuse me, 2019 also 2017. (laughs) Uh, It's incredible that he's also three matches from winning four straight majors. So. If we're talking about a special best-of-five skill, Djokovic, while he's had some really good moments at best-of-threes in the last 12 months, he's been much better at best-of-fives. And has you know we, we've seen him have some pretty tough matches where he's uh, been the stronger player at the end, even if he wasn't at the, at the beginning. So I think, I think it would mostly be a story about their form in this particular format. I'm glad you mentioned that the Djokovic... Novak Slam, Serena Slam. I don't. Is there an official name for this type of slam? We'll just call it a slam, <laughs> consecutive slam. I don't know. Wait. A so if he did it, they would both have two, basically. That he sounds right. So I guess if he could do one more, if she could do one more, they could own the name. But she so has the alliteration. Have, she does have the alliteration. Yep. Um, maybe Novak would change his name to get some alliteration, or maybe it works in Serbian. I don't know what slam is in, yeah. in Serbian. But I'm glad you mentioned it because John Wartime, tweet, I think he tweeted something about how so Osaka is going for was going for her third straight slam, and and his comment was if there was a 21 year old guy in the men's draw who was going for his third straight slam, it's all anyone would talk about, and I guess that's true. I mean, if, if Sitsipas was going for his third straight slam, that okay, I agree, that would be a big story. In one complaint I have is that. John Wardheim is the executive editor of Sports Illustrated, right? And works at the Tennis Channel. <laughs> works at the Tennis Channel. So if he's complaining about the media not covering <laughs> something, maybe there's a mirror nearby he can just glance at. 
He's um, got a tennis podcast. Yeah, I'd say I'd say if he wants us to be talking about something, he just needs to talk about it a little bit more. But granted, I've, I've checked out a little bit from from the tennis Twitterverse this last week or two, but I don't hear a lot of people talking about Novak and this opportunity. Like, it's, and granted, I understand. To me, the, the story of this slam is can it all do it? Like, especially coming from a, the week start to clay season. So I'm. I'm more curious about how this works out for Rafa than how it works out for Djokovic. But at the same time, yeah, he's three matches away from pulling this incredible thing off one year after people had... I mean, last year he was losing to Auto. Yeah, yeah. And that was a real... I mean... <laughs> and people were not saying, oh, we better write about Auto and how great he is. It was like... Yeah. Djokovic is done. That was, that was the headline. Well, there was a there was a guest post on the Heavy Topspin blog. Of everything you needed to know about Marco Cecchinato's um, record-setting trivia-defining run. So I think to, someone Marco C wrote that. Right? Marco Marco C, frequent <laughs> contributor, especially on Italian tennis issues and one-handed backhands. Uh, so there's a, a little coverage there, but but yeah, more because it was so odd and. Whether we call it a Djokovic slam or a Serena slam, I'm pretty confident this will be the only time that someone loses to Marco Cecchinato and then wins their next 25-plus slam matches. I don't know why I did 7 plus 7 plus 7 plus 4 in my head when I could have done 23. <laughs> but now I've double-checked. We know it's we know it's 25. So, Although, you know, it's, I was just thinking, speaking of French Open losses inspiring people, I was just thinking about how Serena's loss in 2012 to Rosano is always cited as, like, that's when she connected with Patrick Mortaglou, and that's when she started her run. So it wasn't immediately after that she won all those slam matches in a row. But maybe there's something about disappointing French Open losses. It could be. Um, let's see. Next up would be Team probably catching off at this point. Uh, it looks like we're in a long deuce game right now. So I know you all are, you all are really enjoying this live, live podcast of, of a match that will be over by the time that you listen to the podcast. Uh, no, the deuce game is over. It's 4-2 catching off. <laughs> Still have a set. Um, I'll be letting you know which direction he serves in the next game. But if we say that's catching off, um, what's, what's your odds for... Let's let's go with the underdog odds again. I'm assuming we're thinking of Kachanov as an underdog against Dominic Team here. What do you think the odds are there? And you've already I've pre-registered. Yep, thirty-two. Oh, twenty-two. Is, is, are you 22. are you stuck on twenty on thirty-two? And broken record. No, I mean I think that I just think that basically it was like I don't think either player is as strong as the counterpart in the first matchup. So the simplest thing was to. Hmm. was to stick with the same probability. I mean, I think it, I probably was too high in the sense of it being on clay and team being so strong on clay. But Yeah, that's what the story is for me. I mean, I, I, obviously we're not watching the match because we're, we're talking about it during a podcast without a TV on in the background. But I'm, I'm guessing that, that Delpo is not at his peak uh, physically. Kachanov can overpower Delpo without having much of a return game. But Dominic's team has proven over and over again that he can break anybody repeatedly on clay and I don't think Kachanov can break him back that much so I mean I, I could see that being 3-3 three, three, and 4 or something like a pretty lopsided match so I mean I, yeah I'm more confident in team winning the quarterfinal than I am in Djokovic maybe the story's a little different if Delpo comes back but if Delpo does come back then going back to what we were talking about before he'll have to play again tomorrow and that's not going to help for someone who's perpetually fragile 
So next up, Vavrinka Federer. Oof. Which probability? Whose probability are we giving? Let's say we're giving Vavrinkas, and I've pre-registered. Forty-six. I was going to say forty-two. So we're in the same ballpark there. I'm, I'm stuck with a two as a unit <laughs> digit, so um, I could probably use that for the next one too. Um, so this is interesting because we haven't seen much from Vavrinka. I mean, we haven't seen much on play from Federer because he hasn't played, but Vavrinka hasn't done much this year. I, I get the sense from the movement of your fingers that you're headed to Tennis Abstract and Vavrinka's <laughs> player page. Uh, I just so happen to remember that in the Madrid round of 32. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, he won 61% of total points in that match, more than I would have expected. Um, so, as I mentioned before, Vavrinka has won one of the one of the showcase matches this tournament in outlasting Stefano Tsitsipas. And Tsitsipas is someone who we wouldn't be surprised to see in this situation at all. I mean, maybe I, I might have favored Tsitsipas over Vavrinka um, in that matchup. Um, Federer, I'm not... A couple of people have pointed out to me how relentlessly, though gently negative, we've been about Federer on clay. <laughs> I feel like we've talked about it in almost every episode, and we're always saying, hmm, maybe he won't turn out too much to do much. I think you even said when he first announced he was going to play, you you weren't convinced he was going to win, to win a match. Um, but he has four of them. Like Eight overall in the clay season. Yeah. Like Djokovic and Nadal, it hasn't been a particularly rough path. I mean, it, according to the Norwegian media, the third round match against Kasper Ruud was the match of the century. Uh my my favorite thing about these situations where local press get ex- get excited about a single player is when someone beats them, the narrative shifts to the player who beat them. So I saw a couple of articles in in Norwegian newspapers that they they talked about Federer's fourth round win, but it was Federer, the guy who beat Casper Ruud, <laughs> <laughs> has advanced to the quarter. A Swiss man who, <laughs> yeah, Swiss player, age thirty seven, yeah. Um, so we think this is going to be a close one. I mean, is is the, the over? Can we expect much from the overall level here? I mean, Babrinka has has not impressed us too much. Federer, we're st- whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> he looked great against Sitsipas. Okay, so he, 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 I mean, it wasn't just a one. Like he, to me, he looked great. Okay, I I haven't watched that, so I, I shouldn't have been making such a generalization. I was thinking longer term. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. Uh, and I'm thinking very short-term, very small sample. <laughs> but with Vavrinka, maybe that's the way to go. I mean, his his triumphs have been short-term. So, so yeah, that, that, either way, we get probably a, a, a heck of a match in the semifinals because the winner of that match goes on to play the winner of Nishikori Nadal. Um, just in, in shorthand, let's refer to the winner of Nishikori Nadal as Nadal. <laughs> <laughs> but for the sake of completeness, let's put a number on it. I've... So we could take the N from Nishikori and he can get 20% of the name? Is that Are you giving me yeah, your, your probability? It's, it's their double C name, <laughs> okay. um, Nadal. So what, what's your, what do you think the odds are for a Nishikori upset? 19%. I was going to say 22 again just to stick with the twos, but yeah. sure, yeah, we're in, the, we're in the same ballpark there. And now, that I, now that we've said it out loud, that seems a little bit high. Are we, are we really giving K a legit chance of beating it all at best of five on clay? I don't know. Twenty percent isn't that high. Like, it, uh, yeah, maybe that's too high. We we've, we've seen Nadal lose surprising matches this clay season, and we've seen Ishikori 
play him really, really tough on clay before. So I, th- that's what leads me there. But I, I wouldn't have argued with you if you'd come in much lower. Yeah, and I guess we don't really know about Nadal's form right now. He's looked great in the, at least the, the pieces of matches I've seen. But as I've said with Djokovic and Federer, like, they haven't really been tested. So fan bases of Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal, we are not picking on your guy. All three of you, your players, have just coasted to get here, basically. I mean, Nadal maybe has coasted more than the others. He got the draw of qualifier in the first round, followed by qualifier versus qualifier in the second round. Can't really beat that. And, you know, I love guys like Juan Ignacio Londero and their, their clay court specialism, but not much of a threat for someone like Nadal in the fourth round of a major. So... I don't remember what our latest what our latest pre-tournament pick was for the men's winner. Were we picking Nadal? I think so. I I think I've been saying all along like I can't not pick Nadal. I think we were just debating like how high the probability is and how much of a favorite. Okay, so at this point, let, I need to pre-register this one as well. But what do you think Nadal's chances of of winning the whole tournament are? Yeah, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Thirty-four. Huh. I was going to say 45. I feel like 80% against Nishikori, maybe a little bit a little bit uh, higher than that. Maybe a similar chance against the winner of Federer Vavrinka. Maybe not quite, but... And then at least 60% chance in the final. I wouldn't give him 60 against Djokovic. Would you make him the favorite against Djokovic? Yes. So it's still not a huge difference. No, but in terms of... Like just 53, thinking, I will not go higher than 53. Well, just thinking through the math. Okay. Um, but Nadal's, Nadal's still the favorite. Is Djokovic the second favorite? Yeah. Although, you know, potentially to much, like a much tougher route to the final and then probably the underdog there. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it is interesting. We have, we have all the big names, most of the big names anyway, facing off in these quarterfinals. And that gives us a good segue to the, the women's quarters where there are a few big names still hanging around. But a lot of the people we expected we'd be talking about in the final eight are gone. I guess that's something we also would have expected. <laughs> One of the reliable things about the WTA for some time now is you're going to get some favorites, but you're also going to see a lot of favorites losing early, like Carolina Pliskova lost early. Um, Kerber was out in the first round. Serena lost to Sofia Kennan. Uh, unfortunately, Bianca Andreescu couldn't play the the tournament beyond the first round. Uh, we didn't talk about her last week when we were listing the dozens and dozens of WTA favorites, but, I mean, had she been healthy, I think she should have been in the conversation. Uh, so we have Simona Halep. We have last year's finalist, Sloane Stevens. Um, we have former semifinalist, Madison Keys. Other than that, we have some pretty new names to this stage of the French Open. Uh, and let, let's do the same exercise Starting at the top, we have Madison Keys against Ashley Barty. Madison Keys got a little lucky since she didn't have to beat Osaka, although I'm not sure Osaka should have been a huge favorite in the French Open. But um, but Keys Barty, I don't even know who the favorite is here. Is there a con- is there a conventional wisdom on who the favorite should be in that match? I don't think so. I mean, Barty higher seeded, Keys more of a pedigree. The French, least, yeah. Um, okay, so so I've pre-registered. What's your what's your Keys percentage? 51? 51. You are committed to this balance. <laughs> uh, I am a little more optimistic for Keys. I 
I haven't watched Barty at this tournament, which is a shame, but I should say my number before I talk any longer and convince myself to change it. But <laughs> no, I was going to say 60 for Keys. I think, I think she's a bit more of a favorite than that. We, we, I think you've made a good case in the past about there are reasons why Ashley Barty shouldn't be super successful on clay. I mean, she's, she's quite smart, and she has a very, um, a very varied game, so she should be able to adjust, and maybe that's what's happening here. Uh, but, but, yeah, I think this, this might be the end of her run. So next up, Halep versus Amanda Anisimova. Anisimova has got to be the biggest surprise among a number of surprises in the quarterfinals here. Uh, so it's a, a great tournament from her. She's also had a bit of a, an easy run to get here, except for knocking out Sabalink in the second round. But could be over soon. Halep has won her last four sets very easily, including 6-1-6 love against Iga Sviatek today. Um, so assuming Halep's a favorite, what kind of odds do you give Anisimova, Carl? And I'm ready to go. <laughs> you remember, you can't go over 100, Jeff. Damn, I'm not ready. <laughs> oh. 24. I guess I'm stuck on 22, but yeah, I think it's about in the same range. Uh, I uh, I have a hard time seeing Anisimova win this match, so maybe the number should be lower. But at the same time, like she's gonna she's gonna hit big. If she has a good day, then those are the sort of matches that Halep seems to lose. Like, there's not much Halep can counterpunch against if she can't get there. And Anisimova can serve big. She can just she can take players out of their game. So, so if it's a great day for her and an iffy day for Halep. Sure, you can you can see that one going the direction of the American. How, how big a deal is it that she's where she is in the quarters, understandably, against an easy draw at age 17? And, I mean, how... How much should we think, well, this could just be a fluke, we need to see a lot more information, or this is a future top three future slam winner kind of? At least for me, I'm not shocked that she's here, and that kind of answers your other question. If we're not surprised that she's here, then that's a really good sign. Like, we're already taking her seriously as a, maybe not really a slam contender, but a second week of the slam contender uh, at age 17. And she hasn't made very many missteps in her professional career, that's the impressive thing. Like many of these other young women, like Marquette Vondrusheva, who we'll talk about in a minute, like Vondrusheva has a, accomplished some impressive things for someone who's, I think, still 18 or 19. But she's also played a lot of internationals and lost a lot of matches against middling players. And Isamova hasn't really bothered with that too much. I mean, she, she she had a good run in, I think it was Stanford last summer, was sort of a breakthrough beating Kvitova. Then she won that tournament against a pretty weak draw in Bogota a couple months ago. So she just hasn't played that much. But when she's played, I mean, she's been not consistent, but WTA consistently getting getting good results. So of all the young women, this, this group of, let's say, Vondrusheva, um, Sabalenka, Yastrzemska, maybe throw in Andreescu. Um, I don't think she's where Andreescu is right now, but she might be number two in that group. Um, so next up, Stevens Conta, another one that I think the favorite's pretty easy to, to identify. Um, we did not expect Johanna Conta to be here, especially since her last round she played Donna Vekic, and that was the matchup in, was that the matchup in the Marrakesh final? I think it was. And that went the other way. Um, that could be a semifinal, so don't email me if I'm wrong. I'll check <laughs> later. But, okay, I, I've got my number. What do you think? What do you think Conta's chances are pulling off the ups, of pulling off the upset here are? 42. Okay, I was going to say 37 for Conta. I feel like I'm consistently more certain than you are. And I'm not a very certain person when it comes to tennis forecasting. 
I don't know what that means. But You're so uncertain that right now everyone has an equal chance at the French Open, according to Hannah Sapshak. Yeah. Including many of the, well, all the players who are out. Yeah, yeah, even some of the ones who lost in qualifying. They're all lucky losers to me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to go back and watch some of Conta's matches. Because like, I, I have seen a couple of her efforts on clay this season, but I'm not convinced. Like She just does not move comfortably on clay at, at all. And it seems like Sloane Stevens is someone who's going to expose that pretty blatantly. He did play in the round of 32 in Rome. Conta won. Made it all the way to the final. That was pretty recent. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe your uncertainty is justified. So last match, the... Biggest surprise of the group is the pairing of Marteta Vandrusheva and Petra Martic. Neither of them are huge surprises. I think we mentioned both names in our last episode. Vandrusheva is, is young, lefty, devastating drop shot, has beaten Simona Halep twice this season. And to me, that, that's all the proof you need that she's legit. Petra Martic won in um, Istanbul, I think it was, and she knocked out Karolina Pliskova to get this far. So... I, as I mentioned earlier, I haven't really been doing tennis Twitter lately, but this is one of those times where I just know everyone's tweeting out of shock that one of these people is going to be a Roland Garros semifinalist. So I'm excited for them and for everyone on Twitter. Um, do you see a favorite in this one? Uh, I do, according to the tennisabstract.com Clay Elo ratings. Does it go to Vondrushva? Yeah. And what's the the margin? She's 10th, Martich is 15th, and the numbers are 35 apart. So a, Not a big margin. <laughs> not a big margin at all. And that's the Clay Elo? Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you agree that Fondrushev is the favorite? Slight, yeah. I think so, too. So we basically said it already, but I'll, <laughs> I'll pre-register a number. What's your, what's your number for Fondrushev? Oh, we're doing the favorite this time. Yeah, why not? 53. I was going to say 55, so... We're in the same ballpark there. I just kept saying Vondrusheva because I'm, I'm proud of myself for learning how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> Although, now that I've said that, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, so that's embarrassing. Um, how certain are you that you're pronouncing it correctly? 55%? I don't, I don't know. So, we are already past our hour of podcasting fun. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about the doubles. Mostly excited that Diego Schwartzman and Guido Pela are in the semifinals of the men's doubles. Um, it seems like a good year for, for dirt ballers to take advantage of the surface. We've also got, also got the Colombians, Cabal and Farah, in the, the doubles semis. And other doubles news beyond the French Open is Andy Murray is definitely coming back to play doubles at Queens Club, and he's pairing with Feliciano Lopez. So basically the Judy Murray dream team will be on court together. <laughs> Sorry, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Jamie. Well, I think this, this is partly Jamie Murray's fault. I don't know about Queen's Club, but when Andy has been talking about coming back to Wimbledon, uh, J- Jamie has already entered Wimbledon with a different partner, or announced these. I don't know whether the entrance had happened, but uh, he's announced that he's playing Wimbledon with a different partner. So maybe he had the opportunity, he passed it up, he didn't want to play with a gimpy partner, he's got a doubles ranking to protect. Um, but that's pretty exciting, right? Do you think we'll see Andy Murray on a singles court by the end of the year? I do, yeah. I mean, I think he's so he's coming back from the same thing Bob Ryan was same same procedure, and Bob's come back really well to doubles. Granted, Bob doesn't play singles; it's different, it's harder. So maybe that means that you know the recovery isn't good enough for singles. But I think if if Bob's as successful as he has been, 
already they're among the best, the top-ranked teams in the world for their 2019 results. That bodes pretty well for uh, somewhere in there a singles player being ready to play singles. Yeah, and, and judging from the performances by the the British men lately, Murray could be the number one British man again pretty soon. <laughs> it's not been the, the best season for Kyle Edmund, I don't think. Um, all right. What about Norian Evans? What about Norian Evans? Okay. <laughs> so on that uplifting note, uh, that wraps up episode 63 of our podcast. Thank you, as always, Carl, for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. And for letting me stay at your apartment <laughs> so we could do this live as, as exciting as it was. Let's, let's check that catching off score one last time. Oh, Karen pulled it off 6-3 in the final set. So goodbye, Del Potro. Juan Martin Del Potro is now out of the top 10. Catching off will probably uh, finally enter the top 10 next Monday. So as obnoxious as my live podcasting of a finished match score was, it was relevant in that way. So thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back pretty soon in some form or other, either before the last couple matches of the French Open or immediately thereafter. Um, Looking forward to that and to some great tennis this week. So we will see you again soon.